Hi everybody, this is Kerry from Donegal. And Rob from Glasgow. Welcome to The Celtic Tales Chronicles. Chronicles. <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> we nailed it. A podcast that examines some of the strange and wild stories that can be found along the west coast of Ireland. This is part two of our main episodes detailing the Wicked Skull Thief of Inishbofin, and if you haven't listened to part one yet, go and check it out now. And just a heads up for our listeners as well, some of this research took us to some very distressing places, so mm. some of today's content might be very heavy. Trigger warnings for racism, colonialism, racial science, and sexual exploitation. Okay, so let's get into it. All right. I think we mentioned before, the British Empire expanded more non-white, non-European people in the lands they inhabited under its control. This control involved destruction of existing social systems, killings, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. All this violence, however, was viewed as acceptable by the British because racist science was used to prove that these non-white, non-European people were inferior to British Anglo-Saxons. And one of the ways that these racial scientists said that they could distinguish between quote-unquote superior and inferior people was by comparing physical attributes. As P.D. Curtin wrote in the 1960 Journal of the Historical Society of Nigeria called Scientific Racism and the British, the key scientific fact that these people believed was that physical appearance was merely an outward mark of an inborn and permanent inferiority for all non-European peoples, end quote. Yeah, so that brings us, you know, we're discussing the comparison of physical attributes, then of course we have to discuss the deeply racist practice of so-called human zoos. And you might be wondering, with, you know, good reason, what specifically is a human zoo? Mm. Um, you know, what does it entail and what do they have to do with the wicked skull thieves of Inishbofin? Yeah. Well, just to explain, listeners, a lot of our research in the Alfred Court hating the wicked skull thief were sparked by articles written by the main anthropologist, Kieran Walsh, who was one of the people who helped find the stolen skulls. And it was one of Kieran Walsh's articles in the Irish Independent that actually mentioned human zoos. He was contrasting the research and, or the research and lectures of Alfred Court Hayden with the human zoos that were going on in Ireland at the same time. So he was nearly saying Hayden's practices were very different to the practice of human zoos. Yeah. I guess it's one of the things we've been trying to keep in mind that Kieran Walsh argues that far from being a racist, Hayden was actually a very progressive thinker who opposed the degradation of indigenous people, you know, at the hands of British colonists. So we also thought it would be useful to actually look at the issue of how non-white people were displayed as part of white imperial propaganda at the time. Yeah, it's kind of this idea of this is the contrast you know, we're getting antipodes on one hand, human zoos on the other hand, you know, so we're trying. So we thought, okay, we'll take the time out and dive into the subject. And as we did so, it became clear that Ireland and Irish people have a problematic legacy when it comes to race. Black people were exhibited here. And going further back, as we showed in the Berkeley bonus episode, there were enslaved black people in Ireland. So, these are things we need to reflect on. 
And as ref- as we reflect on that, it's nearly coming across that anthropologists like Hayden were the good guys and everybody who went to the human zoos and native villages were the bad guys. So the general population. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about. Yeah. And also it's quite complicated. Again, we talked previously about the idea of things not being binary mm. and we don't accept those binary narratives. There is complications. And so... This episode is part of the Wicked Skull Thieves of Irish Bottom series, even though we're not going to be talking necessarily about the Wicked Skull Thief himself, but we are giving that, we are looking at that thing that was, has been put up as opposition that he was good because the human zoos are bad. So, but it's very complicated. So we're going to just discuss the human zoos in this episode because there's a lot to discuss. And then in a later episode, we'll take a dive into the strange and troubling history of anthropology in Britain and Ireland. But for now, this episode we're focusing on human zoos and the so-called native village phenomenon. Oh, are you going to say something? No, no, no. Uh, You're good. And it was actually really popular at the time to display non-white people for entertainment purposes. Um, From the early 19th century right through to the early 20th century, it was something that wasn't seen as like abhorrent the way it would be today. It was seen as popular entertainment. Yeah, it's a very strange thing. And I think we've got to keep that in mind that this is, how do we deal with that subject? How do we deal with those people who use entertainment or accept that? And I know, do you have any thoughts on that, Kerry? You've been thinking thinking this a bit. Yeah, definitely. Like, it's not ancient history. Um, Belgium was displaying black people for entertainment as late as 1958. There are people alive today who could have, you know, conceivably attended a human Mm -hmm. zoo as a child, which is crazy to think about. And I guess when stuff like this is part of the popular culture, obviously there were always anti-slavery movements and people who who knew that this was a bad thing. But when you look at the popular culture at the time, so many people weren't questioning it. They were just attending it as like a day out as if they were, you know, going to the fair or going to the cinema or something like that. It just seemed like a normal thing to so many people. And I'm not saying that's okay. It's just interesting to think about the fact that nobody questioned it or the people who did question it were seen as radical. Whereas now looking at it from 2023 perspective, we yeah. can see that the practice of a human zoo is horrendous. But at the think, time, yeah. it, didn't, it didn't come across like that to the white people who were attending it. They were just, you know, oh, it's just something we're going to. And it's, I, yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think it's it's too easy for us to say, ha, huh, I wouldn't be doing that. You know, if I lived there, we don't know. I mean, exactly. I'm thinking there's yeah. still plenty of examples of you know, if we take away even just from the issue of race, actually, there's categories, but we think of maybe in a hundred years' time, folk are going to be looking at, my God, did folk not realise the tech companies were creating horrific conditions and creating horrific work? Why did folk go along with that? Why did they accept it? You know, there's, there's a lot of things, you know, we need to put that critical yeah. thought back on us as well. So yeah, definitely. just something to think about before we take a deep dive 
saying that though, it does get it's going to get a bit rough. Yes, it's never justifiable. It's just worth looking at um, yeah. the culture of the time. Like when you think about Ireland pre-marriage referendum, yeah. it was way more socially acceptable for people to be openly homophobic. Um, yeah. And as a queer person, I viewed that firsthand. I was 18 when gay marriage became legal in Ireland. And yeah. growing up, it was a very different landscape um, to how it is now as an adult with you know gay marriage being legal um it's way less acceptable to be like openly homophobic especially in like a workplace um but the culture at the time you know 15 years ago when I was a child people didn't question it it was just the done thing to to not kick up a fuss about it and there were always people who were saying hey that's not okay but they were in the minority and I think think it's very similar to the practice of human zoos where the people who were saying hey this is terrible were in the minority yeah, I think we've got to always be aware. It's so easy to slip into just a norm and also attacking the norm and not looking at ourselves. I mean, I was trying to think, when I was thinking this, I mean, I haven't done this, but um, I was just trying to imagine these people, you know, you get up in your work clothes and you get, no, not your clothes, you get, you take your work clothes off, you're putting your smart clothes on, you're going out for a day with your mates, you know, and it's just weird just how normal it is, but take a moment and think of your own life what's normal here that maybe shouldn't be normal and things that you know like marriage equality that is now normal that uh, should always have been but at one point it was homophobia it was normal so there's all these things or what was normal women not having the right to choose with their children was very normal in Ireland as well so there's all these things going on yeah it's just super important to critically examine your yeah. thoughts your opinions you don't exist in a vacuum we're getting very deep here but we're getting very deep we're getting very your deep, choices but don't exist in a vacuum and you're a product yeah. of your environment and it's up to you especially for like for us as two white people it's up to us to yeah. examine those biases and unlearn them and you know tell other people share that information um and it's really important to just think about why you think something as a knee-jerk reaction or why you're like, oh, that's fine. Sure, that's the done thing. But why is it the done thing? And I just think it's it's important looking back at this to recognize that people were not thinking more critically at the time about the practice of human zoos to bring it back yeah. to what the yeah. episode's about. Yeah. I, they I, were I, just like, oh, this is what's on at the weekend. And it, yeah. they didn't think of it any deeper than that. And yeah, it's just important to note. I think uh, anyway, listeners, listeners, we are talking a bit about our own thoughts on this, and I guess it's, you've got to excuse us a bit because we've had to do the research and look at the pictures and read the documents, and so <laughs> give us a little moment, a moment to get ourselves ready before we dive in. So that's what we've been doing. So now we're going to dive in, and uh, yeah, so here we go. Um, one of the things that the um, here on Walsh article was referencing was uh, the Dan Lowry's Music Hall, which is now the Olympia Theatre, and it listed the Human Zoo exhibit in 1886. And uh, as the name suggests, that and all these places they were created to display by displaying dehumanised people of colour for the entertainment of white people. 
And as I've said earlier in the show, Belgium was displaying black people for the entertainment of white people as late as the 1950s, 1958. Yeah. So that's, you know, within living memory. Yeah, that's living. We know people who are alive, who are still alive, who were born then. And uh, I was looking at the exhibition, the photos of that 1958 Belgium exhibition, and I found someone very troubling. The, the most troubling for me, there was a picture of a, it's a white Belgian boy and he's stroking the cheek of a sleeping Congolese child. And I don't want to shame that child. Even he's innocent, doesn't know what he's doing. But you know what, it, I, when I saw the picture, it made me think of petting zoos. You know, when you bring the children to go and pet the rabbits or pet pig or whatever, this child's been brought to pet a Congolese child. I just found it quite... That's so horrendous. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, things are going to get even more disturbing because it's not just the physical differences that were highlighted and often ridiculed, but for many of the women who were displayed in these zoos, their bodies were often sexualized as well. And Sarah Bartman was one such woman, nicknamed the Hottentot Venus. She was exhibited for her protruding buttocks, which was due to a condition called, and I hope I pronounce this correctly, steatopegia that occurs naturally among people in parts of southern Africa so it's just a medical condition but it was seen as something overtly sexual even though she couldn't control it similar to how you know young girls who happen to have a larger chest are told Mm. oh you can't wear that um even though their peers who maybe haven't developed in the same way can wear something and not get you know ridiculed or sexualized at all it's completely out of out of your control but it's still sexualized. Yeah, it is. And that's what happened to her. And just a wee side note, hot and taut, that was a word the Dutch gave the community she came from because of the way they spoke. So they kind of, it was a kind of mocking thing about their language. Oh my God. And uh, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was just there's so much about that story. I think, suffice mm. to say, Sarah Bartman, she was displayed around for entertainment around European cities and those European cities included in 1812 Limerick and Dublin she was displayed Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. and yeah again it comes across like ancient history when you talk about the 1800s but it was still happening you know into the earliest 20th century and yeah we're just gonna you know talk some more about Sarah and what else we know about her yeah I was looking at the website, South African History Online, and it gives a lot more detail about Sarah, or I think it, it's Sarchi is when it's, it's her name. I pronounce it wrong, my apologies. I'm just going to keep calling her Sarah because I don't want to mispronounce her name. She was born in 1789, and she came from the, again, excuse me, Koi Koi community. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, they were traditional cattle herders in Eastern Africa, see Eastern Cape, South Africa. Um, her community, they came into conflict with Dutch settlers. In fact, they were massacred by Dutch settlers. Her fiance was one of those who was murdered by the Dutch. She was sold into slavery. And in 1810, she supposedly signed a contract with an English ship surgeon named William Dunlop. But as she came, tradition and was illiterate this supposed contract seems very dodgy so dodgy 
absolutely and she was basically a victim of people trafficking um, and the magazine History Ireland does note that when Sarchi or Sarah was displayed in London, people did try and stand up for her at the time. Yeah, there was a lot of anti-slavery campaigning in Britain and Ireland at the time. And there was real concern that Sarah was being exploited. But the so-called contract was shown to the court and was accepted as real and valid. And so she remained under the absolute control of Dunlop and things got Yes, yeah. So eventually she was put on display in France where she was now almost completely naked and she had to obey instructions like a circus animal in front of audiences. She was just given instructions, had to just comply. Yeah. She was also examined by scientists and um, the South African History Online website um, talks about one of those scientists and how he, quote, concluded that she was a link between animals and humans. Thus, Sarah was used to help emphasise the stereotype that Africans were oversexed and a lesser race, end quote. And sadly, this story does actually get even darker. So when Sarah died, both her brain and genitalia were removed from her body, pickled and put on display in a museum of man in Paris where they remained on display until 1974 just think about that 1974 my parents were children people like there are people alive who were full adults in 1974 it's not that long ago you know and it was only... I was listening to T-Rex in 1974 and John <laughs> oh my god that's just it's insane. not that long ago no no that's part of my yeah like, yeah, okay. It's crazy. crazy. And it was only after Nelson Mandela became the president of South Africa that Sarah was returned for burial to her homeland. And even then, it took eight fucking years of negotiating before her remains were returned. Okay. So, that is the story of Sarah Bartman. And she a trafficked and sexually exploited woman who was exhibited in Limerick and Dublin. And we did say that this was going to be a difficult episode, and so it is. And we're going to get through it, give you all the information we have, and then eventually we will let Rab do his episode on the UFO invasion of Ireland in 2018, <laughs> as we all know. Yeah, I need to get there at some point. But we do we do need to get through this as well. So, um, okay. Before we go on, I think we should know that in Europe, Britain and Ireland, human zoos mainly contained African people. Whereas in the USA, they also displayed South Asian people. So I know you, Kerry, you were speaking to someone who knows a bit more about that aspect of the human zoos. Yeah, so as part of my research for these episodes, I spoke to a friend of the show and author, Sabina Murray, author of the 2021 novel, The Human Zoo. What's the, what's the novel about? So it's a novel that follows uh, Christina Ting Klein who travels from New York to Manila in the Philippines, both to escape her imminent divorce and to begin her research for a biography of Timicheg, an indigenous Filipino brought to America at the start of the 20th century as part of an exhibition on a human zoo. So mm. Ting arrives unannounced at her aging aunt's aristocratic home mm. and falls into upper class Manila life. And it's a really great book tying together historical fact and fiction. And it is available online. Yeah, quick plug. 
Sabina's books are available at kerrys.ie, the booksellers based in Galway. Okay, that's the plug over. Back to the story. So Timicheg was actually a real person. He was one of a group of indigenous Filipino people who were brought to America at the start of the 20th century to be exhibited as part of a human zoo. And Sabina informed me when I was talking to her that when the USA colonized the Philippines, much of the general public was fed propaganda to believe they were civilizing, not colonizing the region. Okay, so that sounds very similar to the belief held in the British that the Irish were not fit to govern themselves. Definitely, there are similarities there, and I do think it's important to note that there are many nuances and differences between the colonial legacies left in places where the victims of colonization were white people and where they were people of color. Yeah, I mean, like, the huge difference that needs to be pointed out up top is Irish people were not put in zoos. Nor were they enslaved, regardless of what the American alt-right would have you believe. Yeah. And there's other complications when discussing Irish or Scottish relationships with the British Empire. Excuse me. Not least that we, while we were impacted by empire, we were also participants in the empire. And so that brings an issue of white entitlement as well. Which brings us neatly to the concept of human zoos in Ireland in the late 19th and early 20th century. And when you're looking at this, it's important to remember that the modern, especially the American concept of whiteness, um, was not always the way that it is viewed in 2023. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, a, that's a, an important thing. Like for a long time in America, white was Anglo-Saxon and then it was a whole deliberate process of absorbing um, Irish and Italian into that as well. I mean, they were excluded for a long time and then they were absorbed. And whiteness is something that's created and blackness is something that's created and it was created quite deliberately to allow the enslavement of people. You know, these mm -hmm. are quite deliberate concepts. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's important to note. And I remember actually hearing on another podcast um, called Binchtopia, which is fantastic. It's these two girls from L.A. and it's great. But they were talking about the idea of white privilege and one of them had seen a tweet that had stated that Anne Frank had white privilege <laughs> and they were talking about it and the concept of whiteness and how, okay, yes, in 2023 in a supermarket, if, you know, oh, Anne Frank and a black person are in a supermarket, yes, she would have had white privilege. But as a Jew in Nazi Germany, yeah. she was not viewed as white and she did not have white privilege. So it's yeah. really important to have that nuance and the episode of Bitchtopia dealing with that is a really great look into it. One of the co-hosts is Jewish and she does talk about it. But yeah, the concept of whiteness as it's viewed today is not applicable always to the concept of whiteness in the past. It's quite a malleable thing, the mm. white and black thing. And we will take a deep dive at that yeah. at some point. Yeah, yeah. Just note that. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have too much information on the late 19th century exhibitions of black people in Ireland, but there is a fair amount of information on the final Irish human zoo, which took place in 1907. So at this point in time, the exhibiting of non-white people took the form of a native village exhibition, which was still awful, but not as bad as the earlier exhibitions as it was a full-on village setup and it was Excuse nearly... Me. 
Sorry, I've got to open. Excuse me, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, hold on a second, hold on, hold on. There is someone at Rab's door. Uh, he's probably going to edit this out, but if he doesn't, hi guys, nice to talk to you. <laughs> You're definitely going to edit this out, Rab. All right, so do you want to take it from so we don't have much info in the late 19th century exhibitions? Yeah, sounds good. But not yet. Hold on. Just okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, go. So we don't have much info on the late 19th century exhibitions of black people in Ireland, but there is a fair amount of information available about the final Irish human zoo, which took place in 1907. Though at this point in time, the exhibition of non-white people did take the form of a native village exhibition, which was bad, but was not as awful as the earlier exhibitions. Yeah. And I just, I think it's important to know this is a native village exhibition and it's taking place in Ireland. Only a few years before the events that will snowball into a decade of conflict and bloodshed in Ireland. You know, this is what's all going on at the same time. At the same time, there's elements in the British military, political elites and royalty who are absolutely opposed to giving Ireland any form of self-government. In 1914, the Ulster Volunteer Force, they're going to smuggle weapons to oppose home rule, and they're going to be openly supported by elements of the British elite. So things are about to kick off here in Ireland. And just a few years before that, there are black Somalians being put on display in Dublin. Yeah, it absolutely boggles your mind to think that exhibiting black people for a white audience was one of the ways of showing that everything was normal and fine in Ireland, that there was no conflict. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is, again, it is mind-boggling because this exhibition of Somalian men, women and children, it was part of this huge jamboree known as the Great White Fair, which was showing that things were normal here. So Kerry, what was the Great White Fair? Well, it was a massive exhibition of British, Irish and international crafts, industries, culture and entertainment. And here are some details from an article by Brian McCabe called the Irish International Exhibition of 1907. So it covered 52 acres featuring an artificial lake offering boat rides. There was a 50 foot high helter skelter slide and it also had a grand central palace which featured concerts, vaudeville acts and other entertainment. It had a palace of fine art housing 1,500 paintings and there was also a palace of mechanical arts with all of the latest electronic mod cons and a palace of industries which did include an arts and crafts section. So it was massive. It's massive and you know what it does sound kind of cool. I mean it does sound awesome. It sounds like the kind of thing people would want to attend and it had over 3 million visitors running from May to November in 1907. So that's basically the population of Ireland. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Everybody went, oh my God. I mean, it sounds mind-blowing. Um, yeah. Again, we're talking does. about this. It's the context again. If you were there, you would want to go to that kind of place. Yeah. It's, it's the place to be. And everybody went to it, including King Edward the... <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to say that again. <clears throat> 
it it's does probably, indeed. I, I, I choke up when I use any royal term as well. Yeah. <laughs> an allergy so, or something. Anyway. That's it. I have an allergy to the to the royals. So including King Edward the Seventh, is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, seventh. Queen Alexandra and their daughter, they visited all the exhibitions, including the Somali villagers clad in spotless white robes and carrying shining white spears, end quote. Okay. So this is where things start to get problem after about the exhibition. But just talking about that little moment, when I read that, my first thought was of the you know, the recent coronation of King mm. Charles, the whatever. An attendant during the service was a guy dressed up in Scottish Highland dress. Oh, okay. Jesus. And there's like happy exotic native helping some elitist British fuckwit with his British elitist fuckwit rituals. Excuse me. I, Ken, know. I don't want to take away from. Okay. Let's get back to the subject. All right. Before we start ranting on about the British, just remember that this exhibition was a massive hit for Irish people too. And of course, the most popular and profitable exhibition at the Great White Fair was the so-called Somali village. Amongst that three million folk, I know one famous Irish person who really loved this exhibition. Can you guess who? Give me a clue. Okay, you ready? I want to suck your blood. Bram Stoker, Mr. Gothic vampire, white worm writer himself. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the name, the Great White Exhibition, was called, coined by Mr. Stoker. I think it was originally called the, the Irish International Exhibition, but he got the snazzy phrase, the Great White Exhibition, and he wrote an essay about it. Um, just he kind of got to visit it all before it formally opened. And so he wrote this mm. exhibition and he praised it as a wonderful example of how Ireland was leaving behind its old conflicts and was now embracing industry and progress. And do you know what? Can I give you some of the quotes? Absolutely, but maybe let's leave the vampire accents behind. Do you know what? A lot of vampires will be upset at me taking their accents. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm just going to give it all to the vampires. Okay. All right. So people can read the full link, the full essay in the link in the episode notes, but... Here's a few quotes to give it the flavour of Bram the Mam's view of the exhibition. Quote, It is safe, therefore, to predict that when His Majesty the King visits the Dublin exhibition during the coming summer, he will find an outlook which for brilliancy and beauty has never before been equaled in these islands. There has been a great deal of controversy and recrimination in the course of its completion, but it is sincerely to be hoped that after the gates of the Great Fair are opened on May the 4th by the Lord Lieutenant in full state, all bitterness will pass away, and that there will remain full opportunity for a general expression of Irish pride in an object so worthy to evoke it. Fenianism and landlordism are rapidly passing away, if they have not even now come to an end. Patrick's problem is fast Finding is fast finding its solution in diverse ways. Perhaps the many visitors to Ireland whom this exhibition will attract will be astonished to find here and outside in the country at large what wonderful things have been done to start the island upon a new career of industrial progress aside and beyond affairs political. So he's basically saying the Irish are giving up their conflicts and starting to enjoy industrial progress. And this is what, only six years before the Dublin lockout of 1913. Yeah. 
I'm raging. As someone who loves vampires, to hear that Bram Stoker was so anti-Fenian, very sad. <laughs> I, you know what? We could go in a whole other rabbit hole mm. jumping down there. What is the problem with Fenianism and vampires? Why are they not connecting? I'd have thought they'd have been... Anyway, whatever. Okay. Here's an interesting thing, just about this. So the guy who was involved in smashing workers' rights in 1913 was the same guy who was the driving force behind the Irish International Exhibition. This was a guy called William Martin Murphy, and he was the owner of the Irish Independent Newspaper, whose name lives on in the annals of Irish infamy. And it should come as no surprise, therefore, that his exhibition included a fake Somali village. But in actual fact, such fake villages were very common across Europe at the time. So here's a quote from another History Ireland article called Colleen's Cottages and Corrals, the politics of native village exhibitions. Quote, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, fake native villages, often African, but also sometimes far eastern, were hugely popular attractions throughout Europe and America at great exhibitions or fairs. They typically took the form of village buildings complete with villagers who lived on the site and metropolitan audiences could wander around watching the villagers go about their daily routines and producing tra traditional crafts. At the height of the Age of Empire, these displays provided a virtual travel experience to the farthest flung corners of the world. They always presented the people and cultures of the villages as primitive, thereby, thereby assuring imperial audiences of their own cultural superiority and, by extension, providing popular justification for the imperial projects themselves. The overwhelming majority of these villages were run as commercial ventures rather than state-organised displays. End quote. Yeah, that's a fascinating article. And again, there's a link in the show notes. It goes on to explain in this, that article that there was also Scottish and Irish fake villages, but they were very different. You know, they were more akin to, you know, board vault, board vault visits to America or Irish trade fairs to Norway. Okay, it was, you know, people had agency, they were selling goods, they were, you know, they were marketing. Mm -hmm. Whereas the African native villages, they serve an entirely different purpose. They're about highlighting black people as different, as primitive and is needing white people to help them. Yeah, the fake Scottish and Irish villages sound nearly more like the Ulster American Folk Park, where I went yeah. to on a school tour when I was 10, Like, and they had people dressed in the traditional clothing, but they're all paid actors. Yeah. It's not the same, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and this article does also show just how much money white people made from these, so, these exhibits of so-called primitive people. So according to the article, quote, the single most popular and profitable sideshow exhibit was a Somali village. The exhibition's official catalogue announced that a party of Somalis has been imported from British Somaliland, which is situated in the northeast of Africa. This village has been erected to represent the huts in which the natives live in in this country. A schoolroom has also been built in which Somali children will be taught their lessons. End quote. This made a profit of almost £10,000. Yeah, I'd imagine that's a lot of money. Back then, yeah. 20 years ago, yeah. It's a lot of money now, but um, 
yeah, he back there. Um, there's another article I was looking at uh, in a Dublin zine, um, comeheretome.com by Donald Bowen. And it was also looking at that 1907 exhibition. And this article includes a photo of an Irish Times article from May 1907, so just after it opened, which hints at some of the health issues the Somali villagers were experiencing. Quote, this is from the Irish Times, what the Irish Times is writing. We are officially informed that the rumours regarding the health of the occupants of the Somali village are quite unfounded. Dr C. Preston Ball certifies there have been no deaths and no case of infectious diseases, and that the man with the wounded arm is now convalescent, in quotes. I just did the maths. It's about 1.3 million in today's pounds. Oh, my God. So that's a lot of profit. Off oh, of this. my God. Oh, I know. these men, women and children as well. Oh, mm-hmm. my. Oh, my. Okay. And according to the comeertome.com article, the Somalis also experienced other stressful things and that these events would live on in popular Dublin folk memory. Apparently, Flan O'Brien once recounted that a famous Dublin trickster known as the Bird, also the fact that your occupation could be a trickster back in the day, (laughs) kind of interesting, Um, But this guy, known as the bird, stole the baby of a wild man of Borneo from the latter's straw house or tent and smuggled it into the snug of a pub in Ballsbridge, end quote. That is insane. Literally kidnapping children for the crack. Yeah, for the crack. While Hugh O'Connor claimed he returned it to the French pavilion as a gesture against the decline in the French birth rate. Yeah, these could be apocryphal stories. But they do show an incredible contempt for black families. <coughs> Excuse me. Kidnapping their babies is something to laugh about. And even if such a thing never actually happened, it does start to give a sense of just how difficult things were for these men, women and children. Basically, families from Eastern Africa are dumped in some dodgy accommodation in Dublin to be pointed at by white locals who joke about stealing their children. Yeah, but worse than that. They had to meet the fucking British royal family. <laughs> on uh, that cheery that was, note. Yeah, I think on that cheery note, yeah. I think that's the deep dive. We've done a deep that's dive. That's the deep dive. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we're going to be looking more into the Skull Thief information. We're going to have another episode in the series exploring more of this. But for today's episode, I think we'll leave it there. Um, yeah, very intense stuff, very depressing stuff, but it is important to talk about. And if you have any, you know, thoughts, you can email us at the Celtic Tales Chronicles at gmail.com, reach out on social media, um, let us know what you think of the episode and rate and review. So I think that can we think of positive things? I, th- I need to go to a positive place after all that. Yeah, do you have any good news actually to, do you to know what? things on a lighter note? I do, and I can't find my notes. You're going to have to work with me for a minute. Um, <clears throat> Sarah Bartman, apparently there's a provincial area in South Africa has been named after her. So that's oh, wow. kind of, yeah, that's kind of, that's a nice thing. That's good. You that's know, a nice thing, yeah. Recognising that. There's actually a railway tunnel when the railway developments were going in Belgium mm-hmm. there was a railway tunnel named after him in 2007 so I guess there is a lot of 
I guess the positive thing is that it's acknowledging these people with their names there. Mm. You know, I'd love to have the names of the people who were in the 1907. So I guess I'm going to throw that out to listeners. Does anybody know the names of those people? It'd be nice to know who they were. But yeah, I think the positive thing is that it was shocking. People recognise it's shocking. Um, places have now been named after, you know, these fellow human beings who were displayed. And you know what, Terry? I think we should be naming places in Ireland because those people were displayed here as well. So You're dead right, be... 100%. Yeah. yeah. I think that's uh, everything. Any good news with you? Let's... Any... Good news in life. What's going on? Any good news with me? Um. Well, the sun is out today. The sun is splitting the rocks. So I definitely need to get outside and get some vitamin D because I think I, I think I'm lacking. I'm very pale. You can become a vampire. Oh, do you and know then... what? That's my vibe anyway. That's true. I'm a very go... freckly vampire, but one nonetheless. A freckly vampire. Mm-hmm. You can go out giving out to fiends. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting Halloween costume for next year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What about you? Just the sunshine's lovely. And uh yeah, I think just it's a lovely day. I'm gonna take uh, my pop for another walk. I've got the washing out. I found a lovely um Indian vegan recipe I'm gonna to try tonight. Oh nice. cooking. So yeah, that's, that's, that's it. Good. That's good news. Yeah. Also positive. Yeah. All right. I think we'll leave it there. I think we're going to not quite leave it there because I think Kerry's going to make an announcement now about setting up a Patreon. Oh, you're right. My terrible memory. Yes. So we are going to be setting up a Patreon. Um, Details to follow on our social medias as well. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Kerry Graham. And Rab mm. is on Twitter at Havering Rab and on Instagram at Celtic Tales Galway. Um, yeah, we're going to set up a Patreon for bonus content behind the scenes. Um, a lot of the time when we're researching for episodes and stuff, we'll find extra information that doesn't make it into the main episode, but we still want to discuss it. So yeah, that'll that'll be coming soon on Patreon. On Patreon, so stay tuned. And great if you tell your friends, tell your friends, tell your ancient enemies about. The greatest podcast show on the planet, which is mm-hmm. us, the Celtic yep. Tales Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> That's Fun. The Celtic Tales Chronicles is written, hosted and produced by Kerry Graham and Rob Fulton. Edited by Rob Fulton. Cover artwork by Kerry Graham. Music by Kevin McLeod.